Hey, we're so glad you're here. Matthew 22 is where we'll be in our Bible study time. Matthew chapter 22, pull your notes out or maybe fire up your journey app so you can follow along. Hey, next week is Mother's Day. Guys, if you were not aware of that, you better get aware of that if you want it to be a good day and a good week in your household. Um, We're gonna be celebrating moms and grandmas and stepmoms and mother figures at our church next week. So please bring that really important woman in your life to our services. We are asking as many of our families as would be willing to come to the 8.30 service because we think we might run out of room. At 10.30, we're bribing you to do that. We're gonna have kind of a muffin bar. We're gonna do muffins with mom before the 8.30 service only. 10.30, we'll have to go hungry. Um, Both of the services, though, uh, we'll have access to a flower bar, is what I've been told. I don't think those are to eat or drink, um, but they said just say it and everyone will know what that is. Like people are going to get to make their own flowers or something, bouquet for mom, um, photo booth. So it'll be a fun day celebrating Mother's Day. So we hope you'll be here next week. Bring your mother. And if you can come at 8.30 with mom or grandma, that would be great. We're in the fourth week of a series we're calling King Jesus, studying through the life of what it looks like to see Jesus as king and to follow Jesus as king. And we are, con- we are continuing today a long conversation, literally one conversation that takes up almost all of Matthew 21, 22, and 23. One day, one conversation in the life of Jesus. What we've been learning in the first few weeks of this series is that Jesus said that his kingdom was gonna be taken away from the nation of Israel as the primary mouthpiece of who he is to the world and is going to be given to the church of Jesus Christ. Now that would have Jews and Gentiles in it, but the nation of Israel was going to be replaced by the church of Jesus Christ. And at the end of last week, a group of Jewish people said this, like, um, who should we worship, Rome or God? And Jesus said, give me a coin. He took a coin. It had Caesar's image. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God's what is God's. He basically said, humanity's been created in the image of God to be one with God. Live your life in service to God. As we pick up today in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see, 22, we're going to see three things that people who live their life in service to God see about King Jesus and learn about themselves as followers of King Jesus. Uh, I'm gonna give you the point, and then we're gonna study through the text. We'll start in verse 23 by seeing that King Jesus is eternal. We're gonna see that King Jesus is eternal. In verses 23 through 32, here's the conversation we pick up right after Jesus says, if you are made in the image of God, live your life serving God. It says in verse 23, that same day, You might circle those two words and just in the margin of your Bible write Matthew 21, 18. That's where this day started. Jesus heading into Jerusalem, cursed a fig tree. He's been in the temple ever since talking with people. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, you might underline that line, who say there is no resurrection. That'll help us frame this conversation. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Verse 28. Now then, at the resurrection, underline those three words. And remember, these guys don't believe in a resurrection. This is a setup, right? Like, Jesus knows they don't even believe what they're saying. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're asking a question about the resurrection so they can trip Jesus up. Finally, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since she married all seven of them? Jesus replied, you are in error 
because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, the real question, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So we have here a fake question with a real answer. And then Jesus giving a real question with a real spiritual reality. Here is the fake question. It's a question of leveret marriage. I just need to give you a little Bible background so you can understand the context of the conversation. The word levir is the Latin word that means brother-in-law. The original scriptures were written almost entirely the Old Testament in Hebrew, almost entirely the New Testament in Koine Greek. The first major language they were translated to was Latin by the Roman church. The priests were the only ones who spoke it for a while, but a lot of times... Biblical terms will come from the Latin language because Latin was the, the sole language that the church spoke for so long. So this term leveret marriage comes from the Latin word levir, which means brother-in-law. And basically the thought of leveret marriage was a brother-in-law stepping in when his brother had died in not only supporting his brother's wife, but making sure his brother's name would never be forgotten or die out in Israel. Because all lands, all property, all assets were ancestral. So if the son died and didn't have a son to take it, not only would a wife lose her husband, a family would lose everything. So you would step in so somebody's name and heritage would be remembered and so your sister-in-law would be taken care of forever. We find the concept in Deuteronomy chapter 25. We hear the story, seven brothers, one wife, kind of a crazy story, but the context comes from Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. If brothers are living together... And one of them dies without a son. His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law, the lever to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So the levir, the leveret brother, would be somebody who chose to live for someone else's name and legacy. Important to remember, we'll come back to that. Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 9, they're like, what if, what if I don't want to do that for my sister-in-law? Verse 7 says, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I don't want to do that, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, And say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. So somebody unwilling to live for the name and legacy of somebody else would be very publicly shamed. We'll come back to that because both of those things are going to give us a picture of Jesus. But back to the text. Fake question. Question of leveret marriage. We're going to use this to prove There is no resurrection, we're gonna trick Jesus. Real answer, Jesus gives this answer. The purpose of eternity is not physical marriage and family. The purpose of eternity is spiritual marriage and family with the God of the universe and God's followers. Jesus' thoughts, if they were paraphrased, might sound like this. Eternity is not like here and now relationally. There is no marriage in heaven because there doesn't need to be anything that produces life through marriage in heaven because life comes from God and God and all of his followers will live together in one big spiritual family. So 
eternity's not like here. Eternity is not filled with marriage and kids. Eternity is filled with God the Father and all of his spiritual family. So you are in error because you, you don't even know what God is trying to do. He said, however, to the question I know you're really trying to ask, the real question, what you're saying is there really isn't life after death, is there? I love how Jesus said this. I'll answer your fake question with good biblical truth. But let's move on to the real question about the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus gave us this eternal reality. He said spiritual life is eternal life, and spiritual beings are eternal beings. And somehow you have missed that in your study of Scripture. And he goes to the book of Deuteronomy, or he goes to the book of Exodus, and he quotes Exodus 3, 6, in Matthew 21, 31, and 32, he says, have you not read what God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, not all 39 books in the Old Testament. They had not been able to prove from those five books that there appeared to be an afterlife. But Jesus said, 400 years after uh, Jacob died, more than that after Isaac died, more than that after Abraham died, God didn't tell Moses, I was their God. He says, I am their God. And they've been physically dead for more than 400 years, but they are with me today. The Sadducees' underlying point, listen very closely, because we live in a world like the Sadducees. They said, we can reject you, Jesus, because there will be no eternal consequences. And Jesus said, you are... You are misled in thinking that. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tell us that we were made in the image of God as spiritual beings. Job 32, 8 says it is the spirit of a person that gives him life. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 says it is a person's spirit that connects to the God of heaven. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says when we die, our body made of dust returns to the ground, but our spirit made of God is eternal. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 says people are sown naturally, but they are raised spiritually. Jesus says you are spiritual beings, which means you are eternal beings, which means you are account you are accountable to a supernatural, eternal God. And what's interesting is we not only are accountable to a supernatural God, but we are connected to a supernatural God because we had a leveret brother. Now, Jesus was treated as the brother who did not want to be a leveret brother. He was spit on, and he was smacked, and he was scorned very publicly even though he said, I will choose to live for someone else's spiritual name and legacy and not my own. So we see that as we look at Jesus, he's eternal, we are eternal, and Jesus says, I will be mistreated. Even though I do the right thing, I will be mistreated because you have done the wrong thing, but God wants to treat you like one of his own. So we see that Jesus is eternal. And the challenge point to followers of King Jesus is this. Followers of King Jesus choose to live for the name of another, in hopes of an eternal inheritance in the royal family of the king. If all you heard from that point was, I'm not going to be married in heaven, you missed the point. You are going to be with God, eternal, with spiritual family in heaven. The challenge point for followers of Jesus is that we don't live for ourselves, we live for him. We'll end our service by doing communion like we always do on the first Sunday of the month. And the first communion reflection question will be this. What part of your life makes people think about the name of Jesus? Did you this week live for the name 
of another? And are you longing in the most contentious times of family and relationships on planet earth, are you longing for the eternal relationship of spiritual family that you know you'll one day have with God and his followers? King Jesus is eternal. We also learn, number two, that serving King Jesus is simple. Let me make sure you don't hear easy. Serving King Jesus is not easy, but serving King Jesus is simple. Let's pick up in verse 33 again and read through verse 40. It says, when the crowds heard what Jesus said to the Sadducees, he quieted them from the first five books of the Bible. They were astonished. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Go ahead and circle those two words, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Because they're right together, I'm going to unpack those for you in just a minute. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law. Circle those two words, the law, because it'll be important to know what that is. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I think it's interesting to look at the spiritual community then because they look like spiritual community now. So let me talk to you about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. What made them different from each other? What makes them the same as us? So the Sadducees were a group of spiritual leaders who did not believe in the supernatural or the eternal. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in anything past the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So what would their spirit, why would, why would you even be spiritual if you didn't believe in spiritual things? Their hope Their hope was their national identity and its connection to God. Their hope is because we are from Israel, we have everything that God promised Israel. Because we're Israeli, we have everything we need. We don't need anything else. The Pharisees were often spiritually opposed to the Sadducees because of their spiritual beliefs. The Pharisees believed they could earn their way to God through their behavior. Their hope was their spiritual dedication and their spiritual obedience. And when I look at the Sadducees and Pharisees, watch this, not only, do we, not, not only do we have both of these groups in our churches, a lot of times you are both of these groups the exact same week because you're placing your hope in something other than Jesus. You say, how do you know when you're placing your hope in something other than Jesus? It's very, very easy. Anything that gives you peace outside of Jesus has replaced Jesus and anything that steals peace outside of Jesus has replaced Jesus. So when your guy wins the election and you think now everything is gonna be okay, you're kind of acting like a Sadducee. Country's okay, I'm okay. When your guy loses the election and you go crazy, you're kind of acting like a Sadducee. Country's not okay, I'm not okay. You have replaced what only God should give you, this internal, eternal peace, with something on the exterior. You're acting like a Sadducee. Today's modern-day Zionist in Israel would be very much like the Sadducees. If you ever go to Israel with me, you'll find out Israel is primarily a secular society. It's not a spiritual society. The vast majority of the government leaders can't even stand the orthodox spiritual community. 
You say, if they don't believe any of the spiritual stuff about before and what's next, why are they so passionate about Israel, about the land, about settlements, about driving people out? Because they're Sadducees. They think because we're Jews, because this is our homeland, this, we don't have to worship God, we don't have to study the scriptures, we don't even have to have an eternal hope. Um, like, we're Jews, this is ours. Those were the Sadducees. Many of us more often act like Pharisees. We believe we can earn our way to God through our behavior. Our hope is our spiritual dedication and our obedience. How do you know you're acting like a Pharisee? When something goes wrong after you've done right and you feel like God hasn't held up his end of the deal, you're acting like a Pharisee. You're proving, God, I did this for your blessing, not for your relationship. When you do something wrong and you feel like you can't come into church because you've been bad that week, listen, you've been bad every week. Every time you walk into church, you should have one confidence, Jesus and his grace. Not your good week, not your bad week, Jesus and his grace. You say, should we not be spiritually dedicated and obedient? Yes, we should be spiritually dedicated and obedient. But there's a huge difference between being spiritually dedicated and obedient for God and for the world to see you as spiritual. I think our... Our spiritual dedication and our spiritual obedience should always cause us to think we are better for Jesus, but never better than others. You say, why are you spiritually obedient? Why are you spiritually dedicated? Why are you trying to read your Bible in a year? Does that make you better than? Nope, doesn't make me better than anyone. I am just a sinner saved by grace. But it does make me better for Jesus because it opens up my life to spend more time with it. One day we will all stand before God. Everyone we read in scripture, everyone in this room. And when you are asked, what connects you to the God of heaven? The Sadducees would say, well, we're Jewish. And that's the wrong answer. The Pharisees would say, my spiritual effort. And that is the wrong answer. Christians should be the ones who are saying, Jesus, period. What have you done to, to be connected to God? Nothing. I followed Jesus, period. I put all my place in his life, all my, I put all my faith in his life, all my faith in his death, all my faith in his resurrection. There's nothing I can do to stand before God except follow Jesus. So the Pharisees' question was about the law. What did they mean by the law? The Pharisees, the law was the Pharisees' term for the 613 different aspects of the law found in the book of Deuteronomy that served as the practical outworking of the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy means second law. It was Moses' second time giving the law. And instead of just giving the Ten Commandments, Moses would say, like, here's a commandment, and here would be 50 ways that commandment could work itself out in your life. So Deuteronomy is the practical outworking of the Ten Commandments. And by the third century, we know that the oral tradition that the Pharisees followed in the time of Jesus had been collected into a book of sayings called the Talmud. And in Talmud Tractic Makat 23b, in the third century, we read for the first time about the 613 mitzvot or laws that would connect you to God. 248 of them were mitzvot assays, which were positive commandments, do these things. 365 of the mitzvot were the lo te ase, which were negative commandment. Do not do these things. 
And they would say, if you do these 248 things and don't do these 365 things, then you will be connected to God. So when they came to Jesus and said, which one's the most important? They weren't talking about the 10. They were talking about their 613. Honestly, I did not understand the book of Deuteronomy was laid out this way until a couple years ago reading through a Hebrew study Bible. And I read this about the book of Deuteronomy basically outlining in practical life the Ten Commandments. Dr. Stephen G. Dempster said, these decrees and laws in Deuteronomy 12 through 26 creatively apply the fundamental values embodied in the Ten Commands in a sermonic form. Moses is thus interpreting the law, opening it up instead of shutting down its relevance through a woodenly literal understanding. And he's trying to persuade the Israelites to keep the commands for various reasons. They are ultimately words of life, Deuteronomy 32, 47. The Ten Commandments are not so much a law code as they are broad principles that underlie the decrees and laws Moses is about to expound to the people. Moreover, these decrees and laws are far from exhaustive. They're paradigms of how to interpret the Ten Commandments. This requires wisdom, which is what the law is all about according to Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. This is exactly what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount. The commandments... Show things about your heart, not your hands. The commandments were not given to show which ones you could accomplish. The commands were given to show how far your heart is from being able to be righteous. So they come to Jesus and they're like, which ones? We know a bunch of them. Which ones are, which one is the best? And I love what Jesus did. Jesus says the greatest. Instead of expanding the 10 into 613, Jesus summarizes them in two. The greatest command would be this, love God and love people. He simplified it, but he qualified it. He simplified it, but he qualified it. Love God, love people. But here's what he said. Love God above everything else. The first four commandments were all about loving God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as he helped us understand the point of the law, would say in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. Like, love God above everything else. First and greatest commandment, love God above everything else. Second commandment, love people like you want to be loved. The last six commands were all about how we interact with people around us. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, how do you love people? You even love your enemies. Love people. Love God, love people. So as we look at the challenge point, what am I supposed to learn about King Jesus and being a follower of King Jesus? Listen closely. The greatest obstacle for living for God and others is the constant urge to live for ourselves and to put our hope in something other than God's Messiah. The Sadducees put it in their national identity. The Pharisees put it in their effort. We have six examples of somebody who would not follow God obediently through leveret marriage. We see people trying to figure out how to have spiritual control on their own. And I love what Paul David Tripp says. We were not created to live by ourselves or for ourselves. And the attempt to do so never leads anywhere good. True freedom is never found in putting yourself at the center with your choices and your behavior shaped by your allegiance to you. When you're living for you, the call to love others is always a burden. Let me say that again. When you're living for you, the call to love others is always going to be a burden for you. So I love our May 2nd Bible reading, not only because it was three verses, uh, which was nice on that day, um, to think, hey, I'm done, now I can do something else for the other 15 minutes that, um, that I would have read. But because I love the analogy and the picture of Mount Hermon, let me tell you what Psalm 133 is saying. Psalm 133 is saying that if you will live for God, God will do enough 
in you and through you that you'll find yourself living for others. The verse, remember we said as if, somebody say as if again. They said when you come together in unity and make life not about you but about people around you, it is as if the dew that falls on Mount Hermon is trickling down to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Hermon is at the northern boundary of Israel. It actually divides um, Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. It's over 9,000 feet tall, and when we were there in January 2020 with a group, it had snowed a foot the night before we went there. I've got a picture of Mount Hermon that I want to throw on the screen. A lot of you didn't know there's a ski resort in Israel. There is. Um, Our guide said he'd been giving guides in Israel for more than 30 years, and he never had a day this clear where you could see snow-capped Hermon like you can see snow-capped Hermon. Those are not clouds. That is the top of Mount Hermon. What we learn about Mount Hermon at the northern tip of Israel is that it is a porous mountain. So most of the snow does not run off of it. It sinks through it and then comes out of cisterns that feed the springs of southern Israel, literally all over Israel, as it drains into the Jordan Valley and down to the Dead Sea. Some runs off, but most runs through. But the thought is this. If there's a really good rainy day or snowy day on Mount Hermon, they're going to feel that 120 miles south in Jerusalem eventually. Here's the practical outworking of that. God says, I want to do things for you so I can do things in you and I can do things through you. Please do not let what I'm trying to do in you remain on you and not get through you. Please don't let it remain on you and not move through you or off of you. The picture of Psalm 133 is God does something so powerfully for me that it works in me and then it flows out to everyone around me. That's the picture of what we're learning and what we're trying to teach in this point of this message, that the greatest obstacle to living for God and others is the urge to live for ourselves. Listen, when God's blessing begins to fall on your life, when God's word begins to fall on your life, when God's spirit begins to fall on your life, it's supposed to work through you and then to everything around you. That's the beautiful picture of Psalm 133. That is the beautiful picture of being a follower of Jesus. Not a Sadducee, not a Pharisee, a Christian who our only connection to God is Jesus. But because of what Jesus has done for me and in me, he's now doing it around me, through me. That's the picture of Christianity. The third point about following King Jesus, we see this, number three, living for King Jesus takes faith. Living for King Jesus takes faith. Look at verses 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? You might circle those two words. Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be a son? Nobody knew how to answer his question. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day, no one dared ask him any more questions. Probably a good point to get when you're challenging Jesus. God said, who is the Messiah? Who do you say the Messiah is? The Israeli understanding of the Messiah was God's anointed one who would rule over his eternal kingdom and be the intermediator between God and his people. But we should know this. The anointed one in Old Testament terms before the prophets was not seen as an end times supernatural Messiah. David was known as the anointed one. 
King Saul at one point was the anointed one. The high priests were the anointed ones. Some of the prophets were the anointed ones. The anointed ones in the Old Testament were anyone God chose on his behalf to lead. But as you begin to get past David, and David did not do everything for Israel that only a supernatural Messiah could do, both David and the prophets began to talk about one who would come after David who would be the true anointed one. Not just a king or a priest who was anointed by another king or a priest, but a king and a priest who was sent by God to rule the world and to represent God before the world. David is really the one who maybe understood this the best. And in Psalm 110, David said, a Messiah will come who will both be a priest and a king. At that time, you could not be both because king came from Judah and priest came from Levi and nobody could be from Judah and Levi. But in Psalm 110, David said, one day the Messiah will come and he'll be a priest like a Levite and he'll be a king like he's from Judah and he'll be like Melchizedek, who's an Old Testament figure without beginning, without end. Someone is gonna, the real Messiah is gonna be a priest. He's gonna stand between God and men. He's gonna be a king. He's gonna rule on behalf of God. He's gonna be eternal. David looked forward to that time. So when Jesus asked that question, who was David talking about when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, David found himself grasping the truth of God's salvation to the world, that I am not the Messiah. I am the anointed king of Israel, but I'm not the, the Messiah because God's representative has to be a Levite, and he's got to be from Judah, and he's got to be eternal, and I'm, I'm only one of those three things. So David saw himself understanding that God was sending someone better, someone more. And the key question Jesus asked to the Pharisees is, who could he possibly be talking about? And because they didn't want to say Jesus, they said, we're not going to answer your question at all. Watch, watch this. David did not physically see the Messiah, but he did see him spiritually. Psalm 110 said he was his spiritual hope. God, I'm trying as best I can to lead your people, but I'm not good enough, so I know one is gonna come who's gonna be better than me. David never physically saw the Messiah, but he saw him spiritually. The Pharisees did not spiritually see the Messiah, but they were looking right at him. David couldn't see him physically, but he did see him spiritually by faith. The Pharisees were looking right at him, but they couldn't see him spiritually because they had no faith. In Matthew 15, Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides. Not that they could not see, but they would not see by faith that Jesus could be God's Messiah. Which tells us that we have to watch out not to live our life without faith. Because you and I are not gonna spiritually see the Messiah until we do so by faith. We won't see him with our physical eyes. We must see him with our heart eyes. We must see him by our faith. And we won't physically see the Messiah until we spiritually believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Then one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at the feet of physical Jesus that you're Lord. If you spiritually put your faith in Jesus, you physically will one day see him. If you say, like Thomas, I won't believe in him until I can see him, that lack of faith will cause you to live in an eternity without Jesus. Hebrews 11.1 1 and 11.6 says it this way. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's assurance about what we don't see. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And this is the place where our faith gets tested because so many of us, very much like the churches in Galatia, 
We come to Jesus by faith, but then we live for Jesus by experience. We place our faith in one we've never seen. But then for some reason, we make every one of our spiritual judgments about what we can see around us. I would say it this way, following Jesus begins with faith in what we cannot see, but many times gets derailed by focusing on what we can see. So by faith, I've put my faith in one I cannot see, but who I believe I will see one day spiritually. But then I have a bad day, and then I have a bad week, then I have a bad month, and then I have a bad year. And although my faith is in the unseen spiritual, all of a sudden my faith walk gets derailed by the very real circumstances of my life. You were not the first to do this. We won't be the last to do this. Many scholars believe the first book written in the New Testament was the book of Galatians. It was certainly the first book the apostle Paul wrote. And look at some of his first ever discipleship uh, content that he writes to churches. In Galatians 3, 3 and Galatians 5, 7, are you so foolish, he says to the church in Galatia. After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Like you came to Jesus by faith, but now your whole faith walk is based on what you do, not what God does? You came to Jesus by faith, but now if you don't read your Bible, you feel like you have a bad week. You came to Jesus by faith, but now if you kind of fall into sin, you leave church for six months. Like you came to Jesus by faith, but now you think your faith commitment is based on you. He says in, verses, in, in verse five, seven, you were running a good race spiritually. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Let me ask a question of you. For those of you who at one point in your life were running a good race spiritually, and then something happened in life to throw you off. What happened that you took your eyes off Jesus and all of a sudden all your faith decisions started being made on what was right in front of you? Who or what cut in on you to make you think, I began this as a faith thing, but now it's become all about my circumstances? Listen to this and think closely about this thought. If our faith is not past tense and future focused, then it, will have a very, then it will have very little present value in our life. If our faith is not past tense and future focused, then it will have very little present value in our life. If our faith is not about what has Jesus done and what has Jesus promised. Let me say it again. If our faith is not about what has Jesus done and what has Jesus promised, then our faith will never say, I can trust Jesus today. If my faith is only about what is happening today and I forget what Jesus did and I forget what Jesus promised, then I, then I, can, get I can run a good race and I can get cut off in my race. I can begin spiritually, but then I can try to continue in the flesh. If my faith walk is all about today and not about what Jesus did and not about what Jesus promised, then you never have the ability to trust today. Paul David Tripp calls this street-level theology and he said, it's horizontal living, not vertical living. It's basing every one of our spiritual values and beliefs based on what we see in front of us, not who we see above us. So when I look at hard things today, I pause and I say, I can't make my decision based on today. What has Jesus done for me? What has Jesus promised me? While I don't understand how today fits into that, I know what Jesus has done for me. I know what Jesus has promised me. So today I will walk by faith. One of my favorite pastors, J.D. Greer, says the gospel is not a decision you make to follow Jesus. He said the gospel is not the diving board you use to jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool of Christianity. 
And every day the gospel says, what did Jesus do? What has Jesus promised? And I based all of my spiritual emotion on those two things. What has Jesus done? What has Jesus promised? What I'm going through today doesn't make sense, but what has Jesus done? What has Jesus promised? I base every thought of every day on the gospel. Ephesians 1, 3 says it this way, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Maybe not today, Maybe not in Lee Summit, maybe not in Kansas City, maybe not in Cass County, but in the heavenly realms, what Jesus did and what Jesus promised still matters with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You will not always see the results of your faith today, but listen, you can always see what Jesus did by faith. You can always study what Jesus said by faith, and you can always choose in the moment to live by faith. The challenge point here as we end our message is this, the hope of our faith is found more in the promises of God than the circumstances of life. We must follow King Jesus by faith. Second Corinthians 5, 7 just really simply says it this way. We live by faith, not sight. We live by faith, not sight. We remember what Jesus has done. We remember what Jesus has promised. And in between those things, we just follow him as if we trust him. What has Jesus said to you today And what steps do you need to take to maybe move back into the pool of the gospel and let your life become about what the life a follower of Jesus should be about? Because it's the first Sunday of the month, we end our services with communion. We always have our kind of reflection questions that scroll. While those questions are scrolling today, our ushers will be serving you communion. So ushers, go ahead and step into your places and get our communion ready. I'll read you the questions just as a little foretaste while our ushers are getting ready. Here's what I'll ask you to reflect on while we wait to take communion together. You'll be served, and once everyone's served, I'll come back and lead us together. Great questions for the heart of today's message. How do you currently live your life in a way that makes the name of Jesus known? If you don't know, maybe you should ask some people around you. Reflection question number two, if you live for yourself, the call to love others is always gonna be a burden. Where's this happening right now that you need to repent of? and begin to love and serve somebody else in. And number three, what circumstances in life are keeping you from believing in the promises of God? Simply confess those to God and ask him to give you faith for your future that will give you strength in your present. I'm gonna pray and our ushers are gonna pass communion. As they do that, have a conversation with the Holy Spirit about what you've heard and where you need to move. And in just a second, we'll come back and take communion And we will be refreshed again, not because of what we've sent up, but because of who God sent down. God, as we get ready to remember Jesus through the elements of communion, Holy Spirit, come down and meet with us. Talk to us about what our hearts should have heard, what our minds need to think at the end of today's message. And God, as we get ready to join with your son through the elements of communion in just a moment, refresh our souls snow on the tops of our souls, let it seep into our souls and then out into the world that we exist in this week. That's our prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.